Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at LNXCHK on Twitter. All right, welcome back. This week I have with me Rock Rudo. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you do, and we're going to get into S-Bombs today. Sure. Uh, well, like you said, my name is Barack Rudo. I am the DevRel for a company called Scribe Security. It's a small uh, security startup from Israel uh, dealing with securing the software supply chain, a relatively new realm in cybersecurity, but not any less important because of it. I have a history of working as a developer. I worked as an ERP developer and then as a full-stack developer. I came to Scribe for an interview as a developer, they heard me speak. Uh, they saw that I was articulate, I guess, and asked me, have you ever considered a career as a DevRel? And I said, uh, no, because I don't know what that is. So they sent me the uh, requirements. It sounded interesting. Uh, oddly enough, I have a, a degree in education in art, so I'm well-suited for teaching, explaining. It's also something I enjoy doing. I just decided not to take a career as a teacher because I wanted to be able to feed my family. And uh, so here I am as a, as a developer advocate, the explainer extraordinaire. It's my job to explain complicated things simply. Awesome. Welcome to the world of DevRel. We, many of <laughs> us you. sort of fall into that path for a similar reason. Let's talk about software bill of materials. For folks who aren't sure what's going on there, may have heard it in the news, may have not heard about it at all, what's the basic starting point for them? A software bill of materials, if you remove the word software, it's just bill of materials. If you say bill of materials, most people would envision a list of things. Uh, like, here's a big truck. It's full of things. I want to offload that uh, truck. And here's a list of all, all the stuff that's in there so that when I offload that truck, you know what you're getting. So just add the word software back into the mix. And it's essentially the same thing. It's a list of ingredients, both files, packages, everything that is in a software artifact. Uh, it also has a lot of other information like uh, version numbers, relative paths of everything, relationship between files and packages. It's a very comprehensive, essentially, window into what is this software artifact containing. Extremely useful. The, the easiest comparison that I can give is the same as looking at a a foot packet in the supermarket, you turn it around, you can see all the ingredients. It's extremely useful because that way you know if you're allergic to anything, if it contains something that you might uh, not uh, agree with, either on a, a you know, legal basis or on a biological basis of some sure. sort. And again, the, the simple fact is that a lot of people, when they think about, oh, it tells me everything in it, so it's actually a secret recipe. No, it's not a secret recipe. Same as you can't really recreate a food item from the supermarket in your kitchen by reading the ingredients, you can't really recreate a software artifact by seeing what's in it. The easiest example I can give is a, a, a very, very well-known file called index.html. Almost every piece of software would have a version of this file somewhere or package.json or stuff like that. Lots of softwares have that file and that file will be listed in a software bill of materials. It wouldn't tell you what's in there, it will just tell you this file is there. So you wouldn't be able to recreate uh, a software or code. It will just be a very useful tool for you to be able to tell if a certain uh, problematic package or a version of a package 
is in that software that you're about to get or about to deliver to somebody else. So this is something that's kind of come into the news in the past couple of years, right? As as far as like yeah. something that is become increasingly increasingly apparent that is needed maybe for more things as a result of breaches and and other uh, problems that have occurred in software vendors. So when we talk about software supply chain and we talk about like how all this stuff fits together, what does that actually mean for folks that might be building these things? Well, the, the, the idea of the software supply chain is, is well, both complicated and simple. It can mean a lot of different things. So in, in the interest of being clear, I'll explain what it means when I say it. Most code currently in production everywhere on the planet is composed by, of a large degree of open source. That means that uh, most people don't want to reinvent the wheel. They don't want to write everything. And if they need a function or a library, they'll just go online, find something that works, download it. Either they improve on it, change it, or just use it as is. Now, if you take that same idea into its logical conclusion, you use open source packages. When the people who write open source write their code, they also use open source packages and so on and so forth down the line. That means that when you incorporate something into your code, even if you could theoretically go and see what they've used, at some point you lose visibility. I mean, go down five, six, ten levels and you know there's no realistic way, or at least there's no realistically easy way to dig into all that code and see all the dependencies, especially because software is a very dynamic thing. It constantly changes. So when I say software uh, supply chain, what I mean is that this is essentially, let's call it the endless chain of progressively uh, interconnected dependencies that ends up being inside your code. Other, when other people say software supply chain, they also mean in addition to this, all other softwares that happen to be inside a certain network. For example, mm. the, the uh, SolarWinds incident started with an HR software. It wasn't part of the, let's call it, the software that was delivered from various companies, but because that software was inside their network, it found a way to infiltrate, exfiltrate various other things through you know, a backdoor. So that is additional, uh, let's call it, openings for vulnerabilities. But for this discussion, when I say the software supply chain, I mean that endless or almost endless list of, of progressively further away dependencies of open source you can't really get a good visibility without something like an SBON. The SBON not only tells you everything that's in the software, it also tells you the relationship between everything. Dependency is one type of relationship. It's also the, the easiest to explain, but there's lots of other types of relationships, especially if you're considering that uh, the software was built from files. So a certain file in that final artifact might be a log file. It might be the result of a test. It, there's lots of other variations of uh, relationships between various files and uh, libraries in a certain piece of software. So the more information you have, the more information you can give to a reseller, a user, the better suited they are to make their own security decisions. The worst thing is getting that piece of software as a black box. There's lots of examples of people who got that black box, trusted the vendor, and eventually found out that they were legacy code, there were vulnerabilities, Nobody ever bothered to fix it because, you know, the code works. So why mess with it? Uh, so unless somebody is actually held accountable, responsible, nothing will, be, will get done. When you're making people commit to a software bill of materials along with the deliverable, 
when everything is visible, people are more inclined to make sure that everything is at least updated to the last uh, stable version uh, in, in terms of open source and other such uh, uh, components of, of software. Okay. You mentioned the, the solar winds reach from, from a couple of years ago. End of 2020. End of 2020. Oh, it feels like, man, it feels like forever ago, right? Yeah, it does. So <laughs> with that one. It's been a long couple of years. It really has. With that one, like you mentioned that they had sort of come in through an, another system, like, and then infiltrated into what the build process, I think, was, was where that went, right? In SolarWinds, yeah, they infiltrated the build server and added a few lines of code into the final product. Because it yeah. was already in the build server, uh, nobody noticed the code. Uh, went out as an update, already signed with the company's certificate, so everything looked kosher. Because that company has been at work for years, nobody was checking constant updates. I mean, you constantly get updates. You're not going to check every single one. So the update went out as per usual, and that backdoor was installed in a lot of different systems, including nine different federal agencies, which prompted in 2021 the Biden administration to release an executive order which uh, later was followed by NIST's SSDF, the Secure Software Development Framework. And essentially, this whole thing, the executive order and the SSDF, means that the federal government is definitely putting a push on uh, improving the nation's cybersecurity. And both the executive order and the SSDF mention the SBOM by name. So the federal government at least sees the SBOM as uh, an important ingredient in making sure that software is at least uh, visible, if not secure. And again, visibility is the first step in making sure something is secure. Looking back at, at SolarWinds, like if we had had an SBOM of that, what what's the functionality there? Are we looking at checksums of all those files? Are we looking for some other piece of, what's the underlying mechanism that gives that would tip people off that, that something is wrong? Well, that's actually going more into the territory of what Scribe is doing. Okay. Scribe is using the SBOM to create an integrity report. Okay. Uh, the SBOM includes hashes of files, so it doesn't actually need to look at code, just creates hashes of files. Scribe essentially uh, uses SBOM at the beginning of uh, the pipeline, at the end of the pipeline with the uh, final image. We compare the two. If the hashes are different, files have been modified. And once you sign those SBOMs, making them into attestations, they can't be modified. That means you have basically an ironclad piece of evidence that everything is as it should be. If SolarWinds in this uh, example would have used such uh, a system, it would have immediately told them that what they sent out was not what they intended to, that something was different. Now, again, uh, Scribe in this instance, and we're not the only company that's digging into this new niche, Scribe in this instance wouldn't tell them necessarily how it got done or why, and it wouldn't even tell them where in the file the different the different part was. It would just tell them, eh, this file's different. Red flag, there's a problem. Better check in, better look into this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because again, the, the idea behind Scribe and other companies that are dealing with integrity verification is just to make sure that what the company intended to ship out is exactly what they shipped out. That any problems or mistakes are their sole responsibility and that nobody uh, unknown unbeknownst to them has interfered in what they intended to ship out. Okay, cool. And you mentioned the SSEF and that NIST is involved. So like we're looking at then industry-wide sort of requirements or... or it's a or, new framework, a new best practices yeah. uh, system 
Yes. Uh, the interesting thing about this system, unlike other regulations where you have a law and you have auditors, uh, this one was essentially, it, it's aimed at the pockets of people. Okay. What the executive order said that after a year, which has already passed, because the executive order came out in May of 2021, we're way past May of 2022, and the OMB has already instructed federal agencies to start immediately following the SSDF. So at this point, if you're a company that wants to sell to the federal government and you're not compliant with the SSDF, they won't sign a contract with you, okay. which is very simple. So if you want to sell to the federal government, you need to show that you're compliant. Now, the beautiful thing about this is because we're talking about software supply chain, because we're talking about uh, very complex systems that are built on top of other systems, let's say that you are a very, very big security contractor. You make airplanes. And disregarding the hardware, airplanes include a lot of software. And that software is being aggregated from lots of different vendors. So if you need to be compliant, if you need to, to show SBOMs and other pieces of evidence to the federal government, Obviously, you're going to request them from your vendors. And of course, they're aggregating as well. So they're going to ask them from their vendors. And eventually, because everybody wants to be on the, let's call it the nice list of the government, everybody wants to, to at least have the potential capability to sell to the government or to sell to somebody who sells to the government, eventually, and hopefully not in too, much, too long uh, of, of a time frame, uh, the SBOM and other pieces of, of evidence along those lines will be commonplace. It makes a lot of sense. It's not too complicated to implement. It increases visibility and trust in a, a you know in a drastic manner all across the board. So the only reasons not to implement them is if you're trying to hide something. I think, at least, that's that's my opinion. Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a bold <laughs> statement. I know. I know. <laughs> so are you starting to see this come into the the rest of the private market? Like, it's one thing to sell to the at least the federal government in the U.S. I'm not, is there also uh, comparable legislation in the EU? Like that's another pretty big market. Well, no, because uh, like I said, the beautiful thing here is that the software supply chain is not limited yeah. by, uh, let's call it terrestrial borders. Mm-hmm. Imaginative airplane that we're composing needs software from Africa, from Israel, from, I don't know, from Germany. And that's where it's going to go get its software. And if that seller of an airplane needs to show an SBOM, it's going to request that SBOM from everybody. He, he, he doesn't care or it doesn't care where you're located. It needs that SBOM. So the, the software supply chain and, and the trickling down of requirements is going to be global. There's no doubt about it. If you want to be able to sell to the federal government, and like I said, who doesn't, no matter where you're located, uh, those requirements are going to become a best practice standard and they're going to be implemented globally. doesn't matter where the requirement is initiated in this case, okay. the United States. All right. Excellent. Like it, it feels like we're in a good direction with that. Like mm-hmm. there's some of the other stuff that sometimes falls apart, right? Like I, I formerly worked at a company that shipped a lot of open source software. And with that, mm-hmm. you also have licensing concerns from some customers about the GPL and how that works. And we have our own discussions internally about how that impacts the software that we build and, and all those kinds of things also come into it. So I feel like so, at least some people were already thinking about how you put this together, what it does, where you place it, all like the logistics of it on some sides like this. But like, and maybe the scribe helps with this, right? Like 
the logistics or like the implementation of making sure you have all these pieces and wh- what does it do? Is it then something that you require a customer to run? I'm not sure what the, the government requirements are going to be that they're going to get this list and then be able to audit it against the, the piece of software. Currently, the, the SSDF is extremely generalized because okay. the SSDF is intended for everybody, no matter what industry or technological stack mm-hmm. or, or industry um, they're, they're implementing them. So it's, it's, very, it's written in a very generalized way, but it includes essentially all those common sense steps that mm-hmm. if you have to think about them, make a lot of sense, obviously, like requiring developers to have 2FA and sign their commits okay. and requiring that uh, you have at least a plan in place to deal with vulnerabilities or, or exploits, that you have a plan from the minute that you start designing a product to the end of life of that product. How do you tell people uh, that you have people in, in your organization that are in charge of this thing, that whatever requirements you decide for yourself, you communicate them clearly to your partners so that they can all uh, be held responsible to the same standards. So if, for example, you say no packages with this type of license, then you can't receive a piece of software that includes that type of license and that sort of thing. But it includes a lot of different pieces of, of advice. For example, the crypto signing uh, various pieces of evidence, automating uh, tests in the in the uh, CICD pipeline, uh, a minimum of human interference so that the more uh, the more automated the, the pipeline, the better, so that you can essentially sample various tests, make those tests into attestations, sign them, lots of digital signing on everything so that there's lots of pieces of evidence. The more evidence, the better. And so essentially what the SSDF says, or actually what the executive order says, you don't have to show us that you're compliant. All we ask you to do, because there's no auditors of any kind, okay. all we ask you to do is to tell us that you're mm-hmm. compliant. We'll take your word for it until something happens. If you lie to the government, you say that you're compliant when you're not, well, then there's criminal charges involved and huge fines. You we better not catch you lying to us. So essentially, it is still a lot of trust involved. But yeah, most people would not be caught dead lying to the federal government, uh, not if they want to continue doing business with them. So if you're saying you're compliant, you better be. Excellent. So is there anything that you think is missing or any kind of shortcomings on, on this one? It's early days. Well, yeah, but uh, there's a lot of people still working on, on the standards of SBOM because mm-hmm. obviously there's it's it's a work in progress. It's, it's going to be such a work for a while. Currently, the current standards, the two big ones are Cyclone DX and SPDX, mm-hmm. uh, backed by uh, the Linux Foundation and the, um, the the second one. Give me a second. It's the OWASP. I always forget okay. that. Okay. Oh, yep. Yeah, because I don't want to call them WASP for some reason. So, <laughs> so yeah, so they're backed by those two large organizations, uh, slightly different. They're both contained lots of information, but both of them still mainly work extremely well for monolithic pieces of software. Okay. The way the SBOM is built, you, you give it like a huge artifact of software. It looks into it, breaks it down into its constituent components and, and rebuilds this list of all those components, how they're related. Uh, it doesn't work as well if you're thinking about really, really disjointed architecture, like microservices and uh, cloud services and, mm-hmm. and various other types of services that are interconnected but not actually linked. Because then when you when you try to feed something into an SBOM, you won't really get anything. I mean, you'll get lots of different pieces, but instead of getting one SBOM that says, here's, this is the software, you can look at everything, you'll get a pile of them, 
and you're not really sure how everything is connected. Yeah. So that's one of the main shortcomings currently of the technology, and people are still working on figuring out how to overcome this this uh, shortcoming. But the very nature of, of uh, composable technology is that it's built of lots, numerous, not interconnected pieces, which can be reconfigured in various different ways. And that's part of the, the issue here. Some of the things you mentioned are already part of the solutions that the SBOM can offer, like um, license poisoning. You, okay. you can, if you can see all the licenses of all the software in, inside a piece of software, obviously you'll be able to immediately check if you're ingesting something that might make your software into open source unknowingly. For example, having a full list of all the packages and version numbers means that you can easily scan those for known CVEs, vulnerabilities. There's a new um, exploitation database being built called VEX, again, for the purpose of comparing SBOMs to it so that you can immediately okay. see uh, if you have such a problem. The idea is that the more standardized SBOMs become, the more easily you can share them and make them machine readable the easier it will be to implement other pieces of, of comparable technology to then scan those S-bombs and give you insights about them. So like you said, it's it's not necessarily early days. I'm, I'm considering us to be roughly in the middle of the okay. process, but more and more people are becoming aware of this, of the uh, potential benefits. I predict me, you know, little old me, who doesn't have too much, you know, authority on the matter, but it's my personal prediction that we're go- definitely going to see a massive implementation and adopt, uh, adoption of SBOMs uh, across uh, large swaths of industry, especially where people are going to feel the pain. For example, a lot of people have already felt the pain when it comes to medical technology. Sure. Because people find it much more personal to consider vulnerabilities in a piece of technology that's implanted in their own bodies, like pacemakers or insulin pumps. You don't want to think about your pacemaker or insulin pump being hacked suddenly stop working because it has a vulnerability or a legacy system. So there's, there's a slew of different laws passed by Congress a couple of months ago, specifically targeting uh, medical technology. But that sort of thing is just going to be, I think, spill over and, and be implemented in other types of technology. Because the same same thing that you can say about medical technology, you could probably say about cars yeah. or the energy market. I mean, um, oil pipelines, gas pipelines, there's lots of different pieces of technology that are around us that you don't want to see filled with vulnerabilities just because somebody was careless or not diligent enough in updating packages because the code works, so don't touch it. Right, yeah. Increasing visibility is a good thing, like, like we said. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, so one of the other uh, things we always ask folks on the show, and this, is, this has been some great information, but... What's a, a myth that you can debunk for us about S-bombs? So since it's been so much in the news, there's all these, like we mentioned, all these regulations coming through. What's something that we can sort of clear up a misconception for folks? Well, I, I mentioned that a bit earlier, but some people are hesitant of employing it because they're worried about, well, essentially a foreign piece of software or code mm-hmm. looking into their system, looking into their code, who knows what they'll see? They're spying on us. <laughs> what will happen to our precious IP? It's ours. If other people see it, we lose money. So yeah, like we said, the SBOM, no matter if you're using a proprietary system or an open source system to generate it, doesn't look at your code. Yeah. doesn't need to. 
It doesn't care if you're writing in Java or JavaScript or, or Go or Rust or whatever. It, it doesn't look at the code. It just looks at the files and generates a hash based on those files. It doesn't need to look at the code for that. Un- unless you name a certain file, this is my secret recipe that, I don't know, JX, <laughs> making it into a target for anybody who wants to look into your system, there's not really too much people will be able to tell other than you're using, you're probably using React or you're probably using, I don't know, uh, an Ubuntu system because we can probably look at the, the way the file system works on your software and deduce that, probably. But I doubt it's that much of a secret if you're, if you're working on, on, I don't know, Windows or Linux, I guess. So again, it's, there's not that much of a secret that is going to come out of an SBOM. Some other things that people are worried about is, again, the, the, the issue of connectivity. Because, uh, again, the idea of the SBOM is you generate it, you want to share it, or at least other people want you to share it, either with resellers, vendors, clients, customers. Uh, so if you're talking about very large organizations that are very worried both of their IP and security, a lot of those um, infrastructures are not even connected to the Internet because they're, they're really worried about their uh, security issues. So obviously... Working in a completely isolated environment is one of the first steps. So in that instance, you can generate those SBOMs internally, keep them, save them, use them for your own purposes. Uh, and when it's time to uh, share them, you can even go over them, scrub whatever it is you, you don't want to, people to see. For example, I don't know, you took an open source library off the internet, changed its name, changed its content, but you don't want anybody to know about it. You can move it from the SBOM. It won't be a full SBOM, but... Yeah. You're fine. Uh, so again, the, the idea of, of you know risking or, or oversharing IP or code or uh, ingredients or any sort of uh, dangerous penetration of privacy for organizations is a myth, which a dangerous one at that. And the more people know about this technology, I think the the easier it will be to to adopt it. Yeah, I feel that way too. As as more folks get on board and recognize that it's something we kind of need at this point in the industry that that will smooth things over as it becomes more common practice. So yeah, definitely. As you've been working with this and, and we're all kind of, of new to this, but like, what's one thing that you've learned over maybe not just as you've been with Scribe, but uh, maybe over the years, uh, something that you could share with our, our audience that you wish you had known sooner? Like, is there anything out there that's been like, oh man, like this has made my life so much easier as I've learned how to do uh, software and and run things. And I wish I'd known that before. (laughs) Well, I guess it's something I've always known. It's just something that, well, a lot of people know this. Documentation is key. Yeah. The problem with documentation, and that is me speaking both as a developer and somebody who is now in charge of writing it, is that a lot of documentation is, is written with a really odd end user in mind. That end user or theoretical end user has huge gaps in information. Some things he knows so well that, you know, you don't even need to mention them because they're so Mm -hmm. obvious. And some things he knows absolutely nothing about, so you have to explain it from scratch. And those weird gaps means that going through documentation is often, could be, unless it's written extremely well, a grueling process. Yeah. Over the years, I think that the, the trend is improving a little bit as, as more and more people whose job it is to focus solely on documentation are getting into this and they're writing it properly in both an interesting, engaging way, but the information is properly divided and 
if you're looking for a specific piece of information, you don't have to read three long pages of background and concepts. And what this company does, I don't care. I want to know what this you know, command line does. I want to get to that command line, and I don't want to have to read the whole thing just to find it. Um, so yeah, I'm, when I write documentation, I'm, I'm really trying to make it both clear, engaging, and, and you know, not too cluttered with information. Obviously, you need all the clutter at some point. You need everything. You need to have a full documentation of all the possible flags that a command uh, or, or library is able to achieve. But uh, there's a difference between including the whole thing, just here it is, here's everything, go find it, and, and writing a different document that explains things clearly. Like, here's where you start. You just need this line. Ignore everything else. This line will give you the basic. Once you get the basic, if you want to add flags here, you can start with this flag, just this one. Then you could maybe add this one. Everything good so far? Okay, now you can we can explain the other concept and maybe show you a few more flags. You don't need to give them 100 flags and say, figure it out yourself. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, documentation and, and the, the obtusity of most of it is a real pet peeve of mine. Yeah, I totally understand that. I, I often find products that I'm like, well, you know, I don't need your company history and like all of it. It's like <laughs> reading recipe websites and you have to yeah. read your entire life history before you get to like add this much olive oil. Yeah, just just give me the good bits, man. Give me the good bits. In an easy to search index, yes. indexed document. Indexed. indexed, yes. Indexes. That's another uh we could go all day on on all that <laughs> for sure. Uh, well, so that's great. We're kind of at the end of our time. Is there anything else that you'd like to to leave folks with? We'll have some links in the documentation or in the show notes for some of the things that we've talked about, so folks can follow up if they're new to all these concepts. Is there anything that you'd like to leave folks? Well, we we talked about uh, pressure from uh, regulation and government to include S bombs in everything, but I feel like if we can add pressure from consumers, mm -hmm. it, will, it will definitely um, increase the pace at the very least. So if you're buying software, even if you're a big company and you buy software or want to incorporate software, be it open source or something from a big uh, reseller or vendor, doesn't matter, ask for an SBOM. At some point, they might say, fine, and give you a little bit. At some point, they might say, no, we're not giving you. But the more people ask, the more likely it is that at some point it will happen. So if you don't ask, you won't get it ever. So I, I think that um, asking for it is a good first step. And again, if you don't remember anything from the rest of this talk, remember the, the, the acronym SBOM, look it up, read up on it. It's useful. It's, it's, I think it will make everybody's lives, at, both in security and elsewhere, easier. So I, I really hope that we'll see as much adoption uh, as soon as possible. That's great. Yeah, I, I hope so, too. Like, it makes me feel better that there are folks out there thinking about this, uh, especially after some of these vulnerabilities have come to light. So, well, this has been great. Uh, there's a lot of information here. I hope everybody out there learned something. And like I said, there'll be uh, links in the show notes where you can read up on some of these other uh, components and, and standards. And in the meantime, we'll wish everyone out there an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Pager to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. 
You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. <laughs>